What a, what a thrill and a joy for me to be with you this morning. First time I've ever preached next to a waterfall, so that's cool. Um, so June of 2015 is a month I remember well for a couple of reasons. One, that was my first month that I began serving at Perimeter Church, where I now serve as a senior pastor. Then when I came on staff at that church, I was serving in a different role. But my first day was June 15th of 2015. But for a much uh, heavier, darker reason, I remember, I remember June of 2015, because it was only two days after I started on staff there, June 17th of 2015, that a young man walked into Emmanuel uh, African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina. He sat in a Bible study for 45 minutes, and after 45 minutes of just being there, he then pulled out a gun and began shooting. And when his rampage was over, nine people had lost their lives. You may remember this. But as evil and as egregious and as shocking as that is, it's, it's not perhaps the most shocking part of the story. Because two days after that, it was a whole host of family members from those who had been slain, had lost their lives, that gathered in a courtroom. And they gathered to share in the presence of a judge and others with that shooter. And he wasn't present in the room, but he was in a room nearby and they had a camera on him and they had a camera on the courtroom. And so he could see them and hear them and they could see him. And they began to address him. One family member of a victim stood and said, through tears, I just want everyone to know, and then paused and turned straight to the camera to look at him and said, I forgive you. You took something very precious away from me. I will never be able to talk to her again. I'll never be able to hold her again, but I forgive you. May God have mercy on your soul. You hurt me. You hurt a lot of people. God forgive you. I forgive you. Another one stood and said, I forgive you and my family forgives you, but we would like you to take this opportunity to repent, repent, confess, give your life to the one who matters most, Christ. He can change you. He can change your ways no matter what has happened to you. Yet another family member of another victim stood and said, I'm a work in progress. I acknowledge I'm very angry, but we're a family that love built. We have no room for hate, so we have to forgive. I pray that God will have mercy on your soul. On your soul. And this went on for quite some time, family member after family member standing and saying, to an unrepentant man, I forgive you. And there was this great juxtaposition that was present in that courtroom that day. Because on one hand, you had a man filled uh, with hatred, motivated by unthinkable racism, evil bred into his heart over time that would lead him to such an action. And yet in the very same room, just next door, there was this whole group of people filled with something very different. Filled with something that 
you even now might be processing thinking there's no way I could do that. Filled with something that is so unique and uncommon to the world that you might be called crazy. And the reason for that is because you probably feel it right now, certainly I do every time I tell this story, is that the natural bent of our hearts, what we most desperately want in a situation like that is we want revenge. We want justice. And yes, we know that there's that part of us that if we're thinking logically, we go, okay, well, he'll get what he deserves in the judicial system, Lord willing. But even if not, then there is a God who is a God of justice. And so he will have his coming. And so we take refuge in that. And, and we do remember from the word of God that says that justice is mine. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. And it gives us some level of comfort. But if we're really honest with ourselves, we would say, that doesn't quite do it for me. I want my justice. I want my revenge. But if you'll remember, if you're, if you're a student at all of the scriptures, particularly the New Testament, as all of the Old Testament leads us up to this point where Jesus comes and he inaugurates his kingdom and he begins to teach about his kingdom. And the way that we can sum up the kingdom of God that Jesus reveals to us as the king is that it's completely upside down. It's entirely countercultural. It's counterintuitive. It goes against the very fiber of the essence of who we are as people who are fallen and given into sinful revenge. And it's so opposite. It is so dynamic in the way that it pushes us upstream from the rest of the world that we actually become a people who are united by faith to a Jesus who forgive. Another way to say it is Christ is this this kind of unthinkable, unimaginable reality of a human, God in the flesh, who does things that we can't imagine ourselves ever doing, but yet, for the believer, he indwells us. The Spirit of Christ is in us. So what can we say if that's true? If, if Christ is indwelling every person who has believed upon faith in him, then what we can say is this, those who are, who are united to Christ by faith become a forgiving people, just as he is unthinkably forgiving, irrationally forgiving. Because part of what the gospel tells us is that though we have not committed such a heinous crime as this person did in Charleston, we are at the heart level, we're all, we're all grotesque sinners. We don't like hearing that. And if God executed justice on us, we would get everything due us in terms of his wrath. But in, in the most gracious of ways, he has poured out his love on us his mercy on us through Jesus, and we actually don't get what we deserve. We get the exact opposite of what we deserve. Rather than the wrath of God, we get the mercy of God, the forgiveness of God, the grace of God. Even as we said, as we said together from Psalm 103, the steadfast love of God that never ceases. I want, I want to take us to a familiar story in the Bible 
The very beginning of the Bible, very first book of the Bible in Genesis. And I want to, towards the end of that book, Genesis chapter 45, we're right smack dab in the middle of the well-known story of Joseph. And let me just for the sake of, uh, because there's always, I want to always assume that there are people uh, that are listening right now who aren't familiar with the Bible. And so some of you are going to go, okay, I know the Joseph story, you don't need to do this, but some maybe not. So here's a quick recap of this story. It starts in Genesis chapter 37, and it starts with introducing us. We've been following the story of Jacob, but it introduces us to Jacob's sons, particularly his youngest son, Joseph. Now, Jacob, although uh, in many ways was, was lifted up by God as one who would be a patriarch of Israel, he wasn't a great dude. He was kind of a scoundrel. He tricked his brother into getting the blessing from his father, Isaac. He, 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 there's a lot of things that we can go into about Jacob. And one of the things that we see in Genesis 37 is he plays favorites with his kids. Because of his sons, Joseph, he makes, it's not like this, just little things he does here and there. He makes it explicitly clear, Joseph is my favorite. The reason Joseph is his favorite is because it's the only son that he has with the wife that he loves most, Rachel. We won't even get into all that, but... But he, he gives Joseph this coat that basically marks him visibly as you're my favorite. And so all of his older brothers hate him. The text makes it very clear. It's not just like, hey, we're jealous of him, although it does say that. But it says several times in Genesis 37, they hated him. And they hated him so much they wanted to kill him. And so they start acting on that. And Joseph didn't do himself any favors. He's, he's kind of this 16, 17-year-old, you know, immature punk in some ways because he's going to his brothers and he's basically kind of going, hey, I'm my dad's favorite, you're not, you know, that kind of thing. And then he gets these visions from God that make it even worse. He dreams about what's going to happen and he goes to his brothers and he brags about it. He says, God gave me a dream and I'm going to be the king over all these things and you're going to bow down to me. And how, how do you like that? Well, they hated it. They hated it. It says in scripture, they hated him even more. So they plan to kill him. You can read about it. I won't go into all the details. They don't kill him, but they make it look like he's dead. They rip the jacket off of him, the coat of many colors off him. They dip it into blood. They take it back to his father, and they say, yeah, a wild beast killed him, and his father grieves and mourns and cries. And, but what they really did is they sold him into slavery to some Ishmaelites, and he ends up in Egypt. He gets to Egypt, and over the course of many events and circumstances, he uh, has everything from favor to disfavor. He goes from being one who is respected to one, to, to one who's in jail and forgotten. But over the course of time, I, I'm giving you a big, quick flyover here, but over the course of time, in God's providence, he ends up as being the one ruling the kingdom. He doesn't become Pharaoh, who was the king, obviously, of Egypt, but he's second in command, but Pharaoh has taken a back seat to him in some ways. Pharaoh's just a figurehead because Joseph is running everything. And his dream that God had given him when he was a teenager has come true. He's ruling in the greatest kingdom that the world knows, and all of the nations are coming to Egypt because God has done what he said he would do in the dream. He's given a famine. And because of Joseph's leadership, they have stocked up grain and food. And, they, and so the world is coming to Egypt to get food. And so Jacob sends his sons, having no idea that this is where Joseph is now. Ruling and the one that's 
overseeing the giving out of food. And so his, his brothers come and they don't recognize him. They come before him. He recognizes them. They don't recognize him. How in the world would they not be able to recognize him? Well, one thing, it's been 17 years by this point. So he's grown up. Secondly, though, and more, more importantly, he looks Egyptian. He doesn't look Hebrew anymore. He doesn't look like an Israelite anymore. He dresses like an Egyptian. He probably has the headdress on. It would have been common for royalty in that day. Probably had the eye makeup on, some different type of facial stuff going on with paint and beards and whatnot. There's a lot there that caused them not to recognize him. Furthermore, it's the last place they would have thought they would have seen him as the one ruling over all of Egypt. But Joseph recognizes them and he goes into this long back and forth where he's sending them back to Jacob and then they're going to Jacob and saying, this man has dealt harshly with us. He wants his, the youngest brother now that Joseph has never met, his true full brother, Benjamin, the other son from Rachel, who's now Jacob's favorite. He says, do you have a younger brother? They say, yes, bring him to me. And so there's a lot going on. I'll stop there. I may have already lost you. But here we are in chapter 45. And we're at the crescendo of the text, of the story. Because what we're about to see, what we're about to read is when Joseph finally can't take it anymore and he reveals himself to his brothers. Watch what happens. Chapter 45, verse 1. Then Joseph could not control, him, uh, control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out for me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud. There's a lot of weeping that's about to happen from Joseph uh, and even his brothers in this story. He wept so loud that even the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is, my, is the first question he asks, is my father still alive? Hasn't seen him in 17 years. Is my father still alive? But his brothers, his brothers couldn't answer him. For they were dismayed at his presence. I'm going to lead us through parts of this chapter. And I'm going to give you five things that we can observe of kind of how things unfold. As we watch Joseph forgive his brothers. Now, you're not going to see the word forgiveness in the text, but it's absolutely the posture and the theme of the text. It's written, as it were, all over the text. And as we watch Joseph forgive his brothers, the first thing that we see right here in what we just read is astonishment. Astonishment. Astonishment from Joseph first. Because what we didn't read is at the end of chapter 44... I'm just going to read it very quickly here. But at the end of chapter 44, Joseph has just heard something from one of his older brothers that shocked him, that sent him into this astonished moment. And here's what it was. It's from his older brother, Judah. Now, Judah was a chip off the old block. Judah was a lot like Jacob. He was a scoundrel. In fact, there's this story that doesn't make sense when you first read it as to why it's where it is. I told you the Joseph story starts in Genesis 37. You get all this about them selling their brother into slavery, and then all of a sudden there's this whole chapter, chapter 38, that you go, why is this here? And it's all about Judah. You take a break from the Joseph story, and you're, and you're, you're reading about Judah and how horrible he is. Because the whole chapter of chapter 38 in Genesis is about Judah sleeping with his daughter-in-law because he thinks she's a prostitute and getting her pregnant. Can we say that in church? We, I, I just did. It's bad. It's awful. 
He was not a good guy. This is how Joseph remembers his brother in some ways. This kind of character, Judah. But yet, here's Judah standing before him now, and he hears him say this. At the end of chapter 44, starting in verse 32, he says, For your servant, he's talking about himself, for your servant became a pledge of safety for the, for the boy, talking about Benjamin, the brother that Joseph's never met. I became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, let, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord. And let the boy go back with his brothers, for how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would be done to my father. In other words, Joseph had basically said, I'm going to keep Benjamin here. Y'all go back to your father. I want Benjamin to stay here. And Judah steps up of all people and says, take me instead. It's this whole kind of beautiful little subliminal picture of substitution of let me stand in his place. If you're, if you're gonna keep someone, keep me. If you're gonna put someone in prison, put me in prison. If you're gonna enslave someone, enslave me. And he's going, Joseph is sitting there going, who is this guy? This isn't the same Judah. So in other words, he's seeing something in front of his eyes that looks a little bit like transformation. It's not the same guy that I remember. And it brings him to this emotional state to where he can't hold it in anymore. 45 verse one. I'm your brother. Everyone leave. I've got, to, I've got to say something. And he reveals himself to them and watch what they do. Astonishment on their part. He was astonished at what Judah had just said. But now he reveals himself to them. And did you catch it there in verse 3? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. He says, I'm your brother Joseph. And this is what he gets in return. They're stunned. They're frozen. But then watch what Joseph does next. So the first thing that we saw was astonishment. The second thing we, we watch happen is an invitation. Look at, verse, look at verse four. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I'm your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be dismayed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. I love this. This is so beautiful. They're astonished. And, and that word dismayed, at least in the translation I'm reading from, can be translated a number of ways. In your Bible, it might be terrified, disturbed, shocked. There's, there's all of that at play here. They they're all of it. They're terrified in the presence of this brother that they thought they would never see again. And the reason they're terrified is because they're now convinced immediately he's going to get us back. He's been waiting all this time and now he has all this power. We're done. And I don't think that what we read in verse four was this, I'm in command now, I'm in authority now, and it was this uh, verbose, come here. It, no, no, I think it was a soft, gentle, through tears. Brothers, come, come here. Come here, please. And then he says it again, probably because they didn't process it. He can tell on their face, they're not processing that it's really me. And so he says it again. I'm your brother Joseph, who you sold into slavery. And then he says something profound. 
Did you catch it? He says, verse five, and now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. The brothers have to be thinking at that point. Wait, wait, hold on. (laughs) We thought you would be angry with us and you're telling us not to be angry with ourselves? You're concerned about how we're feeling about us? We're worried that you're about to go take us all to uh, the chamber and kill us. And you're, you're telling us don't be angry with yourselves? How in the world could Joseph say this? They, they can't speak, not only because they're going, okay, wow, he's here. Not only is he alive, but he's in front of us as the leader of the greatest kingdom in the world. But he's telling us not to be angry at ourselves. This doesn't make sense. How could Joseph say this? Well, there's a very good reason that he's saying, don't be angry with yourself, because thirdly, he's aware. We watch, we watch this whole concept of awareness take place. What is it that Joseph is aware of? Watch what he says. In the second half of verse five, he had just said, don't be angry at yourselves because you sold me here. And then he says this, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. Verse seven, and God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. Listen, this is beautiful. Verse eight, so it was not you who sent me here, but God. Becomes very apparent at this point that Joseph has walked many, many years with this God. He has set many, many hours with his God. Such that because he knows the character of God, the profound nature of God, he knows that God is at work in all things. He's aware that God rules over and even ordains every minute millisecond of our lives. Doesn't negate free will, doesn't make us robots by any stretch of the imagination, but God is either sovereign or he's not. We don't get to pick and choose. Joseph has learned as he's set with his God over seasons and years, is he's learned that this God is greater than I could ever imagine. He's infinite in every way and I am finite in every way and there's gonna be things that I don't understand about him, but I do know this, he's good. Is he safe, right, C.S. Lewis? Is he safe? No, but he's good. Will he bring things into my life that I don't want? Absolutely. Will I not understand them? For sure. Will, I, will there be some things that he brings into my life that I won't understand in this life? Absolutely. Will I understand at some point? Yes. Will it be in this life? I don't know. Possibly sometimes, other times it'll be as we sit with him uh, for eternity and he reveals things to us. But the bottom line is that as Joseph communes with this God over these last number of years, he's learning about this God to say, it wasn't, it wasn't my brothers who ultimately did this to me, it was God. And he did it for a reason, he did it for a purpose. And so don't be angry with yourselves because I'm aware of the reality that God is sovereign over every minute detail of my life. Everything. 
We have to remind ourselves that the throne of God is not like a casino hall in, in Vegas where God's up there just rolling dice, hoping that it turns out favorably for you and for him. And that he's watching with bated breath, is this gonna work out? No, no, he is ordaining all things, even the hard things, to do exactly what he says he's gonna do, that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. The struggle for us is that we often don't get the Joseph story in the sense that we don't get that moment where we can look back and go, oh, well, this is why it happened this way. Even that verse in Romans 8, 28, we struggle with because we want to define good the way that we like to define good. All things work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Well, good for us is almost always centered around comfort and ease. Good for God is always centered around holiness and what's going to bring him the most glory. Joseph knows his God intimately. And because of that, he's aware He's aware of the character of his God such that he can say, it wasn't you who sent me here, but God. And because he's aware of the sovereignty of God, of the goodness of God in all circumstances and all things, he's able to do something next that's truly shocking, and that's be generous. Generosity. Joseph does something here unexpected because what would you think he would do? Even if he forgives, fine, okay, forgive your brothers, that's cool. But don't be nice to them. We would expect Joseph in this situation to, um, to forgive and then dismiss. Hey, I forgive you, I'm not gonna exact revenge on you, but get out of my sight. Go home. You get nothing, but I'm not going to kill you. Or maybe just a little bit better, we, we might expect that he would say, I forgive you and you can have some grain, but I'm just going to merely tolerate you. But what he does is the exact opposite of what we might do in that situation, because watch, watch what he does. If you skip down to verse 10, he tells them, first he says, hurry up and go back to your father. Tell him to come down here. Tell him I'm alive. Bring him back. Bring the whole family. And then he says this, verse 10. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks and herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. Goshen was this, the most fertile part of Egypt. It was, it was up in the, uh, the, in the southern hemisphere. The rivers are going up, right, looks a little different than what we see. And so the Nile Delta is, is north of where this is happening. And where that Nile Delta is happening, if you go just a little bit east of there, there's this really fertile land that back then was called Goshen. And Joseph says to them, not only am I going to forgive you, but I want you to have the best of the land. And I'm not just gonna send you there. I'm going to, if you keep reading through the rest of the chapter, he gets Pharaoh in on it. And Pharaoh and Joseph together just inundate them with stuff. Take all the best of foods, take the best wagons, take the best grain. We're gonna put you on that land and for generations to come, you're gonna flourish. Can you imagine what's going through his brother's heads? Okay. You're not just going 
to not kill us, you're also being inexplicably generous to us. It's profound in nature. If you skip down to verse 20, I won't read all the way down there, but if you skip down to verse 20, he says this. He says, have no concern for you, for your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. We have to understand, friends, that in the kingdom of God, generosity rides on the coattails of forgiveness. When we are a people who are forgiving in nature, we don't stop there. Forgiveness in the kingdom of God pushes us to take the next step, the very next baby step, which is generosity. It's even part of the word for give. If you're forgiving, then you give, which is so consistent with the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is, is that we are that extra mile. That phrase even came from early church Christians who would literally go the extra mile that no one else is willing to go. Why? Because it's exactly the nature of God with us. He doesn't just give us what we don't deserve. He gives us in full, in immeasurable fashion, all these things that we don't deserve that would be the opposite of what we do deserve. We deserve his wrath because of our sin, yet he's abundant and generous and generous and generous beyond our wildest imaginations. And so then we watch the last little part of this story and it's intimacy. Because look at verse 14. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck and he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. They're just now being able to speak. This is, I don't want you to miss this. This is ugly crying, snot out the nose, slimy down the cheek. I don't care who's watching crying. This is uncontrollable emotion within intimacy. And you would be tempted to say, wow, what a beautiful story. God has restored intimacy to Joseph and his brothers. No, no, no. There's no restoration here. It was never there. They hated him. But yet now, through these horrible circumstances, yet through the sovereignty of God and the goodness of God and the generosity of God, there's intimacy that never existed between him and his brothers. It's beautiful. Astonishment, invitation, awareness, generosity, intimacy. Now, how could Joseph love like this? There's only one explanation. I've already mentioned it numerous times, but it can only be explained through the reality of a God whom he knew so intimately that he would love the way his God has loved him, that he would forgive the way that his God has forgiven him. As I said at the beginning, a people who are united to Jesus by faith are a, a people who forgive like Jesus. Now, it would be great at some level if we ended the sermon right there, you say, well, that was good. Hopefully you would say that. 
Not because of me, but because of the text and the power of it. But there's, we have to connect a major dot. That if I didn't connect this dot for you, then I, I really wouldn't be that great of a preacher or student of God's word. Because the dot that has to be connected is this. God gave us this Joseph story for a number of reasons. One, it's true. It's history. It happened. But I'm convinced that one of the very reasons why he unfolded it the way that he did was so that it would serve as a picture for us now, for the church now, this beautiful shining beacon of a light picture to the true and greater Joseph who would come. Our dear friend and brother, Tim Keller, who just passed away this week, he, he was the one who would always say that, the true and better Joseph, the true and better Jacob, the true and better David. And his name is Jesus because Joseph is actually this, this beautiful little beginning picture of one greater to come who would be even better than Joseph. And so in the same way that we watch forgiveness from Joseph to his brothers, we can see the same exact pattern happen with Jesus' forgiveness to his siblings, you and me. Because the scripture tells us that he's our older brother who's won for us in our inheritance. And so we think about it and we go, oh yeah, okay, there's so much here to, to see similarities. There's astonishment. In the same way that Joseph revealed himself to his brothers and they were astonished, in a, in a much bigger, more profound way, the God of the universe reveals himself to us through the person of Jesus. And we are even more than the brothers of Joseph, astonished. We, we consider the magnitude and the majesty of God, the, the power of God, the authority of God, that he is so enormously majestic that he can speak a word and stars hang in the sky, uh, that he can, that he can uh, speak a word and over the course of however many uh, milliseconds, there are things that just appear. The, the, the fish of the sea, the beasts of the fields, the birds of the air, the, the sun and where it hangs and the moon and its place and all of this and we, stun, we stand stunned at the majesty of God. And we say with the psalmist, who am I that he would be mindful of me? Who is, who is man that he would care for me? And then we meet Jesus and we hear God say through the person of Jesus, it's not that I'm just mindful of you. It's not just that I care for you. I reveal myself to you in full. And then we read things like 2 Corinthians 3 and 4 where it says that we see now in full the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We have it so much better than Moses who got the backside glory of God and had to wear a veil for 40 days because the glory of God emanated from him just from a little millisecond of seeing it. But yet we see the fullness of the array of the glory of God in Jesus. And we're astonished. God has revealed himself to us through the person of Christ and just like the brothers of Joseph, but even more so, we stand stunned. And we, just like the brothers of Joseph, might begin to think a God that big, a God that holy, a God that perfect is out to get me. His wrath is gonna come down on me and justifiably so, and what does God do? Just like Joseph, he invites. He says, come here. As James says, draw near to me and I will draw near to you. And then he tells us exactly how to do that. Hebrews tells us, chapter 10, says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, here's how, by the blood of Jesus. 
We sang about it earlier. There's only one way to draw near to God, and it's only through the blood of Christ. By the new and living way that opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. This immeasurable God has come to us and said, I love you. I'm not going to exact revenge on you because of all your sin against me. Come here. I want to draw near to you. We also, just like his brothers or just like Joseph, we become aware. We become aware that, that all of Scripture is pointing to Jesus. That everything is pointing us to the reality of Christ among us and in us. We become aware, just like Joseph, that this God who is so big and, and grand and splendorous and all the things that we begin to rightfully attribute to him is also the God who is near and who ordains and leads us through every little detail of our lives in such a way that we can have confidence upon confidence upon confidence that he's at work in everything, both the good and the bad. As we become increasingly aware that everything is by his grace, then we're actually motivated to be a people who are generous. As we experience the forgiveness of God over us, what do we do? Well, through Christ in us, we just like him become a generous people. Because we know the extent to which we have been forgiven through the blood of Jesus, we are those who extend the same generosity to others that he has extended to us. Jesus poured out generosity upon generosity upon generosity upon us. And he did it through the cross. What was it he said? What was it he said upon the cross? Is he's, is he's just trying to breathe and he's pulling himself up on the nails that are through his hands and wrists. He cries out. You remember what it was? God, God forgive them. For they know not what they do. Generosity upon generosity upon generosity because, friends, here's the thing. You and I often approach God. Listen, don't miss this. If you haven't heard anything I've said, hear this. Your tendency is to approach God thinking that he has forgiven you and now just merely dismisses or tolerates you. That he doesn't want to put up with you. But our God, through Christ, is not that way. We saw it with Joseph. It's even more manifold in Jesus, which is this. What did Joseph do? Joseph said, I'm not just going to forgive you and dismiss you. I'm going to forgive you and give you the greatest of lands so that you'll flourish. I'm going to provide for you in every way. I'm going to bestow upon you every blessing. And what does Jesus do? He does that times 10 million. He says, I'm going to rescue you from your sin, but I'm not just going to leave you there. I'm going to bestow upon you in every way, provide you with every spiritual blessing. And then when it's all said and done, you will flourish with me in this life, regardless of circumstances. And when it's all said and done, I'm not going to bring you to the land of Goshen. I'm going to bring you to the land of eternal flourishing called the new heavens and the new earth. But then watch where this story comes to a conclusion, at least this part of it. If we kept reading into chapter 46, you would eventually get to verse 29, where it says this. 
Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, that's Jacob, his father in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and, neck and wept. And I love how Moses, the one who authored this, I love how Moses says it here. He says, for a good while. Don't miss this. Intimacy, intimacy with the Father only comes through the pardon offered by the Son. Joseph offered a pardon that his brothers didn't expect, and it ended up in this reestablished intimacy with the Father. How much more true with Jesus? God offers us a pardon through Christ. That only through him and only by his blood, what do we get? We get intimacy with our Father, where we can cry on his neck for a good while, as it were. Not just now, but for all of eternity. People who are united to a, for, to a forgiving God become a forgiving people. So two questions to leave you with. Two applications to chew on, hopefully, as you go from here. First one is this. Have you experienced the power of God's forgiveness in your life? Truly. I say this to my church often, which is this. It is really easy to come to church and play the game. But have you really, have you met Jesus and experienced this profound forgiveness that only he offers? by faith and his shed blood for you? If you haven't, today's the day. But those, for those who are in Christ, you know this forgiveness, but you've allowed your heart to settle back into the, just the human tendency, which is to not be profound forgivers. The question for you is, who do you need to forgive through the power of Christ in you? I'm going to expect that that question just now for some of you prompted an immediate person in your mind. You know who it is. Maybe a few people. And you may say, well, they've never asked for forgiveness. Neither did Joseph's brothers. The nature of the kingdom of God is countercultural and counterintuitive in every way such that we would forgive just like Jesus forgives us.